Welcome to the 69th episode of the 4th and 24 podcast with Patrick Winograd. I'm your host, Randy Winograd. In this edition of the podcast, our topics are a recap of Patrick's weekend predictions, revealing teams number 11 through 25 in our preseason college football rankings, and another installment of random assorted important news from the world of sports. So let's jump right in with a look back at Patrick's weekend predictions, which are posted every Thursday on our website, 4thand24.com. And at this time of the year, all the predictions are in Major League Baseball. With the Yankees taking two or three from the White Sox, Patrick incorrectly picking the White Sox to win that series. The Reds took two or three from the Phillies. Patrick incorrectly, incorrectly picked the Phillies to win that series. The Mariners took two or three from the Blue Jays. Patrick incorrectly picking the Blue Jays in that series. And the Dodgers swept the Mets with Patrick correctly picking the Dodgers. So Patrick went one and three in his MLB predictions this weekend, which also he was 1-3 overall in this weekend's prediction, which brings him to 155 and 118 overall, a 56.8% winning percentage this season. Patrick, your thoughts on your MLB predictions? For everybody wondering why why we are still saying this season, yes, there is a season reset. It comes at the start of college basketball season because that was, I believe, when I started doing predictions. I predicted from the first week of college basketball and the really late weeks in the NFL. Uh, so that is actually coming sooner than you'd think. It's actually probably only 15 or so weeks away at this point, which is crazy to think that we're that close to football season and basketball season. And as we're ranking our college football later, yeah, we are really, really close. But moving on to these predictions, speaking of feeling like a long time away, it felt like it's been forever since the Field of Dreams game. We already covered it on the last podcast and I almost think that the Yankees were able to take two out of three in the series because they were able to mentally reset with the off day they got on Friday in the middle of the series. I think they were able to isolate the Field of Dreams game as a one-off game. Uh, Zach Britton asked to not be the closer anymore. They had a different closer for a new extra innings games the next game, and all of a sudden they only give up one run in extra innings. The Yankees score three. And they win the second game of the series. And the third game of the series, the White Sox just really couldn't get it going. Uh, They grounded into, I think, two or three double plays to end innings, including one to end the ninth inning uh, to end the game. Left eight men on base, although the Yankees also had two on base in every single inning uh, from, like, the first to the sixth. So both teams missing a lot of opportunities, but the Yankees still cashing in on more, winning that final game 5-3. to Uh, And by the way... Two of the runs were, actually, both teams scored two in the ninth inning. It was 3-1 going into the ninth inning. The Yankees scored two at the top. Uh, The White Sox scored two in the bottom of the ninth. Maybe if they had held that lead, maybe they still get those two, and then maybe they end up winning. Who knows? Goes into a lot of different things with reliever moving around. But, uh, yeah, I was surprised that the White Sox ended up losing this series. But when I I think about it again, I I do think the Yankees were able to mentally reset and, and get new momentum rolling after being able to have a day off. Uh, Which, by the way, they played 17 games in 17 days, so they haven't had one of those in a long time. Uh, Then you have the Reds. This series was not really that interesting, actually, to be quite honest. You had a 6-1 game one way, a 6-1 game the other way. Uh, Although the Phillies were pitching a no-hitter for, I believe, seven and a thirds innings, I think, when it got broken up by a solo home run. Uh, and that actually is a common theme, a no-hitter going 7 to the 3rd and being broken up by a home run, but we'll get to the, the second game of the predictions where that happened in a second. Um, but the Phillies then lose this series. They had an opportunity with the bases loaded, uh, down 4-1 in the fifth inning, to, in the fifth inning yesterday, uh, to really capitalize on the game. They had Bryce Harper up the middle of the order, 3-4-5. They get a walk, and then they get a sacrifice fly, and they score no more. 
They go. They stay down four to three in that inning, and then later on, the Reds tack on more runs, make it seven to three. Too big of a lead for them to overcome, and then all of a sudden, the Reds win the series. A very important series win for the Reds, and it looks like I should have listened to my own advice from two weeks ago because I said on on a podcast two weeks ago, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I'm going to keep picking the Reds every single time they they can, and I said I'll pick them next weekend. They were playing the Pirates, so I opted not to predict that series because that wouldn't be all too impressive. Uh, but I should have stuck to my own advice from last from two weeks ago. Then in the Mariners Blue Jays series, I will say this series got me a little bit upset because uh, the, the the umpires won the game for the the umpires won the series for the Mariners. Game one of this series was decided. Both teams had bases loaded in the ninth inning in a tied game two to two. The Blue Jays score a run. They call the guy safe on the field. They go to review. I have no idea what evidence they found that he was out, but they called him out. I think it was a bad call, which there have been plenty of them at home plate this season, uh, including one actually earlier this week in the Dodgers series where Brad Miller had his foot six inches off first base, and they called an out on that. So uh, the the replay has a lot of issues. It's not just this game, but uh, this one was especially stinging because it was the last out in the ninth inning, uh, it, or it ended up being the last out in the top of the ninth for the Blue Jays. And then the Blue Jays get walked off by a walk, by a bases loaded walk with two outs in the very next inning. Uh, the Blue Jays had a runner that should have been called safe at home. And by the way, they could have continued that inning for more than that. They could have not. It, it could have been more than just a one run lead. And if they were protecting one run lead, then it's still who knows what could have happened after on both sides after the walk. You could have had more runs from the Mariners, and with another hitter up, you could have had more runs from the Blue Jays. So it could go a lot of a lot of ways, but. Uh, the Blue Jays really did not get got the short end of the stick when it came to the umpires this weekend. Uh, but I will say I did expect them to win the Hyunjin Ryu start too. So at the same time, I'm not surprised that they lost the series after losing that game, which was game two of that series. Uh, and then the, that was a big inning for the Mariners that they got as soon as Ryu went out. They he I think he gave up one base runner in the seventh or eighth inning, and then they took him out, and then their reliever gave up a three-run home run, and the game was over there. And then the Blue Jays won game three, but it was meaningless already. Then you had the Dodgers sweeping the Mets, and uh, as I talked about with no hitters getting broken up, I believe it, it might have been six and a third for Taiwan Walker, not seven and a third, but Will Smith hit a solo home run. By the way, actually another home run by a catcher, too, because Tyler Stevenson, the catcher for the Reds, actually broke up the no hitter for the Phillies, but uh, a, bro- a no hitter broken up by a solo home run. But this one, because of the Mets' inability to score completely, uh, actually propelled the Dodgers to tie the game. Uh, in game two, uh, actually, the Mets only scoring in that game on a solo home run, and then the Dodgers getting over their extra inning woes, winning the set, winning game two of the series in extra innings, two to one, and actually winning ga- game one of the series uh, off of another Will Smith home run. This one, a two-run home run in the tenth inning to put the Dodgers up six-four. They let out. They they got the uh, the inherited runner scored for the Mets. The, the one that gets placed on second base at the beginning of extra innings. Uh, but Kenley Jansen ends up with a six-out save, not giving up any runs. And the rest is history for the Dodgers. And then they won the last game of the series, 14-4. So not much to talk about in that game. All right. Well, Patrick's predictions for next weekend will be posted on our website on Thursday. That wraps up this look back at this past weekend's predictions. Let's turn our attention to college football. And with the college football season kicking off in a few weeks... We figured it was time to start looking ahead at the season ahead, start looking at the season ahead. Uh, The coaches released their preseason poll recently, so Patrick and I are going to reveal our preseason rankings starting on today's podcast. 
with teams ranked number 11 through 25. Just not going to spoil that top 10 just yet. Yeah. Got to stall it out for a little bit closer to the season. We'll reveal our top 10 on next Monday's podcast. So let's have Patrick uh, give us his teams 11 through 25, or Patrick maybe 25 through 11, depending on how drama-filled you want to make this. Yeah, I think I'm going to go in the opposite order. I think uh, maybe especially because teams might think that they're in the top 20, just very, very, or very, very low in the top 25, and then end up not on the wrong side of the rankings. Uh, so let's start at number 25. I have Liberty. Then at 24, I have Louisiana, the team that is returning the most production in all of college football. I have Ole Miss at 23. I have Coastal Carolina at 22. Had that Crazy, miraculous, random, out of nowhere, 11 and one season last year. Uh, I have Iowa at 21. Then I have Texas at number 20. Washington at 19. Three Big Ten teams, 18 through 16, at with Penn State, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Then I have USC at 15. Miami at 14. No, not Miami of Ohio. Sorry for any of those fans out there. If they exist, I've never met one, but uh, maybe they exist. Uh, then I have LSU at 13, hoping to reclaim that 2019 form rather than the 2020 form. Then Florida at 12, and Oregon at 11, with Kayvon Thibodeau leading the way to most likely a, a Pac-12 championship for Oregon, although we'll see what will happen for them. All right, well, I'll go uh, in backwards order. I'll start with 11. That way we kind of remember proximity where we were to yours. Uh, and then we can talk about teams maybe that we both of us just left out. Uh, or some of us left out, and we can argue about it like we always do. I, I've got you know, uh, Miami, Florida, number 11, uh, Derek King. I think they got some quarterback talent there, finally. It's what they've been missing. Uh, number 12, Notre Dame. Uh, number 13, Oregon. Number 14, LSU. You and I both have USC at 15. I've got Cincinnati at 16. Penn State at 17. Washington at 18. Iowa at 19. We both have Texas, number 20. Both have a Big Ten team at 21, but I have it at Indiana at 21. I have 22, Utah, 23, Michigan, 24, Ole Miss, and 25, Auburn. All right, so I will already say the one thing that stands out about your list is it clearly has A, a Big Ten bias, B, a your favorite team bias, and C, a college football playoff-esque kind of a ranking where, uh, according to you, the group of five doesn't exist, which I don't blame you for because... If you look at the college football playoff ranking, uh, I'm pretty sure every single time a team goes undefeated, the AP ranks them fourth, fifth by the end of the year, and the college football playoff has that team ninth, tenth, twelfth, thirteenth. So it is a common thing, and really, it, I mean, it is really hard to actually measure how good those teams are. Um, I would say you have to have Liberty and Louisiana ranked just because Louisiana was ranked at the end of last season and returns pretty much all their production. And by the way. You put in a team that has that went two and four and does not return, basically not not doesn't return any of their production, but doesn't return too much of it, especially when you're considering that that production wasn't very productive in the first place. Well, I, I will say you're talking about my bias, but you're not talking about my one bias that I'm not having, and I'm not having putting very much emphasis at all on last year. Teams went through. Last year was a crazy year all around, but teams had different practice regimens. Teams had different conditions on campus as to when what they could or couldn't do. Could they eat together? Teams had different practice schedules. They had fits and starts and stops and games paused. And so I think that last year was just a crazy year with some crazy results. I don't think Liberty's that good. I think Coastal Carolina was last year's COVID fluke. Um, yeah, Louisiana has a lot of talent. And you might be right. Maybe I do approach this more the way the college playoff football team football rankings do. But that's 
who are the best teams. I'm, I'm predicting who I think the best teams are, not who I think is going to be ranked in the polls or, or whatever at the end of the year. I'm listing who I think the best teams are. And yes, I'm biased for Michigan. Michigan was two and four last year, but they were decimated by injuries. They didn't practice. It was just, it was a weird, weird year. Well, I counter you saying the COVID protocols thing as you have Notre Dame outside of the top 10, even though they couldn't eat their team dinner with each other at the ACC championship game. They have Wisconsin's backup quarterback as their starter. He couldn't win the job at Wisconsin. A big drop off from Ian Book to him. If I recall correctly, he did win the job and then he got injured. And then since he couldn't play, they gave the freshman a chance instead. I don't think he actually lost the job, but that's a different story. He's no Ian um, Book. No, he is not Ian Book, and and we'll get into it later. But that's definitely why I have them nowhere near the top five. But um, I won't I won't spoil that. So I'm not. I'm, we're going to get off of Notre Dame because of that. So I, I don't want to spoil that one too much. Um, I've got Cincinnati in the top fifteen or top. I have sixteen. Okay, sorry. Yeah, but I have Cincinnati in the top ten as as is very there's obvious. There's a lot of teams who I think had great years last year that are going to be the hunted and come come down to earth. Well, I think the thing that you're missing is that Cincinnati... Here, I will say this. Uh, I have my full predictions coming out for the entire season, and I will say this. I will spoil a little bit of it. Cincinnati plays a tough enough schedule that... They are that they will end up probably ranked where you have them, but that's not how we're ranking teams. We're ranking teams by how good they are, not not where they're going to end is, at the end of the season. I agree with you. I think this is how good they are. Well, I, I think, think that Cincinnati is a top ten team that plays a schedule that's a lot harder than some of the other teams do, and because of that, Fair they're point. probably going to fall below that. Fair point. I think that if you look at Miami's schedule, you look at North Carolina's schedule. Uh, I think that when you look at those teams' schedules. They're gonna fall out. They might not fall out because of because of how easy their schedule is. Especially, by the way, Oregon and Washington. Their hardest games are playing each other. Uh, Washington, a home game against another team, and Oregon. Yes, Washington playing Oregon at home is a harder game than playing Michigan on the road. Yeah, but their hardest game, Oregon plays Ohio State. Okay, that it, you're right. I, I did forget about that game. Yeah, but I mean, there you go. There's another example. I think Oregon probably ends with one or two losses, definitely to Ohio State. Uh, and then also probably to Washington, we'll see. But if they end with that, they're not going to end up 11th. But that doesn't mean they're not the 11th most, the 11th best team going into the year. So that's how I view it. And also, I view, the- I really do view experience as very, very important, yes. especially after an odd season, because I don't think that you can take guys who were freshmen last year and plug them in as starting sophomores this year, because they're basically a freshman from a previous season. So. I'm viewing the experience thing as a big deal, which is why I have Louisiana there. I don't like... I I would put Texas higher if they didn't have a first-year head coach. Uh, I would put Iowa a lot lower if they didn't have a coach that's been there for forever and an old quarterback. And I would put Coastal Carolina lower if they didn't have a returning quarterback either. Ole Miss has, frankly, if you want to argue about it, Matt Corral could be a top-five quarterback returning at least, not top-five overall, I think. There's a lot of five stars that are waiting on those top teams. But when you look at it, I see Spencer Rattler. I see Desmond Ritter on Cincinnati. And then I see Matt Corral. So it's very hard for me to put any, for me to leave Ole Miss out of the rankings, even though, I mean, the best way to describe Ole Miss is they will score 60 and then they will also give up 80. So they're not, they're not going to be a top 10 team because of that. But if they're, but by the way, that is a team that I will say, if they can figure out how to play defense well this season, they could really shock some teams and climb up the rankings. They could shoot up the rankings if they figure out how to play defense. I agree with you. And by the way, I agree with you that, that experience is important, particularly at the quarterback position, which is why you're saying to me, well, why do you have Cincinnati so low? I just think that they have a tough schedule and they're going to lose some games because they're 
They're not. People are taking them seriously, so they're going to get everybody's best effort, which they didn't in years past. But again, the it's schedule have, shouldn't matter for how you rank them preseason. I think they're the 16th best team in the country. I don't think they're the top one of the top 10 best teams. And frankly, it's that's why I have Oregon a little lower than you. I think is I think you underestimate the importance of having an experienced quarterback. Uh, running your college football team. And I think there's some other teams that, frankly, I have, we'll talk about it next week, in the top 10 that I'm a little, I'm, I think could could disappoint people because they've got some inexperience at quarterback, particularly in road games. I think Oregon has the advantage that a lot of other teams didn't have, though, which is the fact that they actually got through their quarterback struggles last year and they found the quarterback who was underperforming and replaced him with a new one. And now they have a competition between the underperforming one and the new one, and now they have to figure out who's the better yeah. one. They're probably going to stick with uh, the with the new guy, not Tyler Shuck. I forget the other guy's name. I'm sorry, everybody. But um, also, I can't, I can't, I can't say that somebody that has that good of a defensive end as as Kayvon Thibodeau is. I can't say that as a junior, he's not going to be the best player in all of college football this year. I truly think that. So when they have that, I mean, it's the same thing. Maybe, okay, sure, maybe it's like a Chase Young scenario where he's not going to win the Heisman because he's a defensive end, but at the same time, he's going to carry this team. And I think that that's something, by the way, talk about lack of experience. Good luck Pac-12 teams blocking Kayvon Thibodeau because they couldn't do it last year. They could barely do it when he was a freshman. Good luck with him as a junior. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, we're kind of splitting hairs here, Patrick. There aren't that many teams that we're, we differ that much on. I mean, we Cincinnati's one, probably Wisconsin is another that we differ um, a lot on just because you mentioned them. Uh, you have them at 16. And really, you and I have Wisconsin, Cincinnati are probably the only two differences we Where have. Where do you have Wisconsin? Well, clearly, they're in, clearly they're either unranked and or they're in the top 10. And uh, I think that there's a little difference of opinion between Wisconsin uh, and Cincinnati for you and I. Maybe I have unranked, but maybe we should talk about the teams that just missed out in our rankings. Well, I think we should hold off on that for a little second here because I will say the teams we differ on in terms of the top 10 are not too far out of it, except for I really hope you don't have Wisconsin unranked, so I'm just going to assume that you push them into the top 10 because uh, I think I, I have two teams in my top 10 that aren't in yours and you have two that aren't in mine or maybe even three, uh, but we'll see that next podcast. I'm pretty sure there is. I mean, I know that we both have the same top five because... I don't think there's any way that you can screw up the top five this year other than putting them in a different order than somebody else. Um, but, yeah, we can go to who we think just missed. All right. And are also receiving votes. Who do you have? Well, obviously there's no also receiving votes when there's only one when there's only one person <laughs> ranking. But uh, I have Oklahoma State just on the outside looking in. I have Utah there who you have ranked. I have BYU. I have Arizona State. And I have Northwestern who... That's a team that I will say I will not really look at last year's results on. And the other thing is, the weird thing about them is they also went to the Big Ten Championship and then were the worst team in the Big Ten the year after. So I can't really take their last year's performance and put it to this year because, again, they went from Big Ten Championship game to 1-11, I'm pretty sure, or at least I think they were winless in conference. And then they went from that to Big Ten Championship game again. Uh, so they they bounce up and down too much for me to feel like I, I need to rank them on past performance. But I will say that I think Pat Fitzgerald runs a good enough program that they are good. They are enough of a top 30 team, I think, to mention. Um, I think Arizona State has one of the most underrated, but also at the same time uh, most volatile returning quarterbacks because Jaden Daniels could be very, 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 very good. But he also could not pan out. I, I think he reminds me, if the name, if you remember the name, he reminds me a lot of Jade, of uh, of Martinez 
from Nebraska yeah. a few years ago where he was listed as a top five Heisman candidate going into the year, and then Nebraska went four and eight. Yeah. Uh, and he actually got replaced in the middle of the season as a starter. So I think I'm not saying that his floor is that low, but I think his ceiling is similar. And then the floor is a little bit higher, which is why I have them outside on the outside looking in. But at the same time, I wouldn't be very surprised, by the way, in a week in really a Pac-12 that's not that strong. They could actually run the table in the Pac-12 if they were able to pull out a win over USC. To me, that's a. I have. I also have Arizona State uh, as one of the teams that just missed after Oklahoma State. So you and I both have Oklahoma State. I think is a first team missing, uh, but they lost a key piece uh, to their team. Basically, their the, the the heart and soul of their offense in Chuba Hubbard. But um, Arizona State to me is just a program in turmoil. They've got all these coaches getting suspended, and one coach ratting out another coach, and that—that's the like you have a yeah. Toxic locker room, and it's. I was go about one, to say that—that's the other thing that does affect it is even without quarterback play being volatile. Also, if you have a locker room issue like that, that's a huge problem. And obviously, if you if you guys don't know the scenario, there is a there's an outstanding NCAA investigation into a bunch of recruiting violations at the program, which. Could put a bunch of things in jeopardy. They could end up getting coaches suspended in the middle of the season. They could have guys who can't coach at all for the rest of the season. Yeah, and they already have coaches on leave. Uh, Coach Herm Herm already said that he's going to keep it out and that they're filtering it well enough. But it's all coach speak when you get get down to it. So I, I think that's sparking a lot of disbelief in this team. Yeah, and then so also in my just missed are two teams that you had ranked, Louisiana and Liberty. I also have Northwestern like you. Um, for the reasons you said, also, I think Northwestern won some very fluky, close, crazy games last year. They did win a lot of crazy just, games, yeah. Just, and they then did. their true colors were showing the championship. And also with a shortened season, yes. by the way, in that in that division in the Big Ten, I mean, you get, one, you get the home game against the second best team in the conference, and all of a sudden you're pretty yeah. much golden, which, by the way, Wisconsin has that scenario this year. Yeah. And then I have, uh, I have BYU. Um, and Oklahoma State. So we actually do We actually pretty do pretty much agree. Pretty uh, the only difference is, actually, if you take all of our top 30, the only difference is that I have, you don't have Coastal Carolina, and I don't have Michigan. That is the only difference in That's all correct. of the top 30s. Uh, I mean, I have I have Utah unranked, you have them ranked, but other than that, it's pretty much similar. Uh, I, think, I, I, think, I think we agree for the most part, although there are some differing reasons as to why we have teams a, a few spots higher than each other. Uh, and I think that when you look at it, when you look at a team like Oregon and you say, are, are they 11th or are they 13th? I think you could put them as high as 8th. And I think you could, by the way, I think I, I will say another thing. I think from 5 to 20 about, it's just a giant mess. I think that after the top five, every team is right next to each other. And depending on what day they play each other on, if they play each other, I mean, I think you could see somebody like Texas, who we have 20th beating one of those teams that we have in the top 10 in a bowl game, and they could beat them by 20 if it's on the right day for them. I mean, it, it really is possible. I could see Texas beating Iowa State, who we both have in our top 10. Won't say where, but I could see that happening. I could also see Iowa State beating Texas by 30. Um, and I could even see a team like TCU, who neither of us even have in the just miss category, being better than Texas this year. There is really a huge mess after that top five. And I think that that's what creates the, the all these differences from you have Miami at 11, I have them at 14, I have Oregon at 11, you have them at 13, you have Cincinnati at 16, I have them in the top 10, I have Notre Dame in the top 10. All those differences are because of those random, are, are, beca- are because of just those weird factors from last year and their carryover effects. And also, 
what do you value as important and how much stock do you put into last year, which I think you put in less than I do. I put very little stock in. You put in very little. I put in a little. So I'll say I put a little bit more than you do, but at the same time, I think we're both, I think we both agree that being a natural, very good program consistently over the last five to 10 years is a lot more important than being good for the last, for just last year. And by the way, I think these rankings really reflect that because if you look at the types of teams, LSU won a national championship. USC would have been in the Pac-12 championship last year and has been to the Rose Bowl very, very recently. I mean, we're banking a lot on Penn State rebounding because that team was not good last year either. That team was in the same boat that Michigan is. And I had Michigan completely outside of this, and yet I have Penn State at 18. So, I mean, there are a lot of variables in it. And by the way, part of that is because Penn State has seen consistent top 10 finishes at the end of the year for the last three or four years now. Uh, So I'm writing that as a one-off for them, whereas I think Michigan has some other issues, especially with young quarterbacks at the helm. Uh, And then, I I mean, I really think that some of these teams, like Miami even, Florida, Florida had a really great year last year, but again, how much do you put into that? And they lost Kadarius Toney, they lost their quarterback, they lost Kyle Pitts, they have nothing coming back on offense, they just have a really, really good SEC-level defense. And a bunch of talent to replace it, but not all talent pans out, and it that's why Florida could really be a variable team too. Yeah, and like I said, we're splitting hairs here, and I said maybe between you know moving up five points in the ranking. I think you're right. After the top five, which again we'll get to our top ten and the all important top five that I think everybody can guess, you're really splitting hairs up or down ten slots in the rankings, and a team that because of because of how crazy last year was, um, a team that maybe gets ekes out a win early in the year when they have young talent, can get better and better and better and be a dominant team at the end of the year. That's always the case in college football, particularly with these teams with young quarterbacks. So I, I, I think that uh, we're, we're seeing the world pretty similarly despite our disagreements. And I also think what you just said about a young team getting a big win, I think a prime example of that is if Michigan pulls off a win against Washington and some other teams lose in week one and Washington's top 15 and Michigan's still unranked like they start the season, or will most likely for the AP, but did for the coaches, that could be a momentum shift for that team. And then all of a sudden, maybe Wisconsin loses a game earlier in the season and now Michigan can beat Wisconsin on the road, but there's so much variance in the fact that that, that that exists. And by the way, another thing is there are some easy schedules here. There are some differences you, I can easily see LSU ending 7-5, and five, but me still feeling like they're better than some of these teams who I have, i.e. a USC, Wisconsin, Indiana, that I just feel had easier schedules by the end of the season. The good thing is, at the beginning of this season, we're going to get a lot of great non-conference matchups, which we didn't have last year. Right. I mean, we're going to see a lot of these teams out of the gate. Do they you know, make a big impression? Do they stumble and have to rebound? There's a ton of of great games amongst ranked teams. I mean, and let's talk about this. I mean, I I think it's fine to spoil one team, and I think that team is very obvious. Alabama got 63 of 65 first place votes from the coaches. I'm not going to say whether I have them one or two, but I think it's pretty obvious that you have to have them one or two. They play Miami in the first, I think the first week or the second week of the season. You have Miami 11th, I have them 14th. There's a top 15 matchup to start the season. You have Washington, Michigan, which for you is, in, is number 18 against number 23. Uh... There's, I believe, I believe uh, there's Georgia and Clemson, yep. who are in that very obvious top five that we'll get into the order later. But I mean, I, I said it to you. If you look at the way the season's going to go, when you're looking at those top, that top five and how good they are, it's possible that the winner of Georgia Clemson 
is a playoff team and the loser can't make it because of the one loss that they have at the very beginning of the season. Oregon, and Ohio also, State. And, and Oregon, Ohio State is another example of it. There are a lot of good non-conference games this year. And also, I don't even think that's just a uh, uh, we didn't see it last year thing. This is a lot better than what I remember from 2019 or 2018 or 2017 too. I think this is not just I think this is not just uh just because of that. I think this is teams really seeking out other teams that they think have long-term success possible, and I think Georgia and Clemson probably scheduled this matchup maybe 6-7 years ago, back when DeAndre Hopkins was on Clemson and before even the Jake Fromm days at Georgia, well, but all of a sudden they sustained the success and now look at the matchup. I think you're starting to see these because as you said schedules were made several years in advance and when it became apparent that the college football committee was going to place greater emphasis on playing quality opponents then some of these programs are like, oh my gosh, we need to schedule these things, but it took a few years to get them into the rotation. And also, instead of Georgia saying, we'll play an ACC team, they will say, we will play the best of the best, and Clemson will agree to do the same. Although, Clemson's not playing Alabama. Right, but well, as, as, as people can tell, we have a lot to say about college football. We're going to have... And let's not spoil the top 10 any yeah, further. We're gonna, we're we've kind of dabbled into the teams. We're going to have college football uh, when we reveal our top 10 next week, and then we're going to have a look ahead of the season. So... Plenty more college football to come, but that wraps up our discussion of college football for this podcast. So now let's turn our attention to more random, assorted, important news from the world of sports. Uh, okay, mainly for Major League Baseball again, but some other sports. Too. Hey, this is like 75% MLB compared to like 100% last week, but uh, or last podcast, I should say, not even last week. Uh, I will start with my, uh, my new favorite segment, my mini segment, my segment within a segment. Uh, the lopsided scores of the MLB. Uh, none on Friday. Very good job, MLB. Nobody got blown out by more than seven runs, although there were a few six runs and seven run games. But then on Saturday, the Pirates beat the Brewers 14 to four in seven innings. Might I add, this is the the Brewers' only loss in their last seven games, and it comes by ten runs in a seven inning game, which is just it's crazy. Um, the Red Sox beat the Orioles 16 to two, which was the ga- the first game Kyle Schwarber has pitch has been in uh, since July 2nd, I think, against the Dodgers. Then you have the Braves who beat the Nationals 12 to two. They're rolling right now. You have the Twins beating the Rays 12 to nothing. Not a good look for the Rays. Then you have the Diamondbacks beat the Padres 7 to zero. That's an awful look. That's Although, like any other team winning 21 to nothing. Yeah, that is that's that's true. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get on to that game a little bit more later. Uh, on Sunday, you have the Indians who beat the Tigers 11-0. Uh, Tristan McKenzie took a perfect game all the way to the final batter of the eighth inning uh, until the Tigers hit a single. And to let you know about how much of a blowout this game was, on the single, the hitter actually threw his bat at the ground in frustration. So the only hit the Tigers got was a frustration hit because that was how bad that game was going for the Tigers. Uh then the Dodgers beat the Mets 14-4, and speaking of frustration, the Mets pitched two different position players in this game against the Dodgers after, uh, really, they had a chance in this game to come back. They had bases loaded only down 9-4, to uh, but then they didn't capitalize on the opportunity, and two innings later, once they got blanked in the next inning, they threw in the towel in the ninth inning. Dodgers added on two more and added it finally into my blowout range because it wasn't in it for most of the game, even though the Dodgers were up 6 to nothing in the second inning. Maybe this is a topic for another day, like rule changes we'd like to see in the world of sports, but we were talking about this. It's ridiculous. The Mets, as you said, had two position players pitch in the ninth inning of the game. They literally made a pitching change to take one position player out to put another position player. And it's a joke. Just have it so you can quit. I, 
Also, well, can't they forfeit warm-up pitches? Can they just do that? Because there did not need to be an extra commercial for the last out of that game. Yeah, I guess the only people happy about it were the, were the broadcasters, ESPN, because they got to put, put another commercial break in. But that's absolutely ridiculous. And may, Or maybe the rule is, if you put a position player in, he has to finish the inning. I don't know. It's just... It was stupid. All right, sorry. I, I also think something that could be interesting there is uh, the one thing you don't want is the Indians situation where it's 11 to nothing and it's a perfect game going on. You don't want somebody getting their perfect game ruined. So maybe in the parameters of the rules you say, if somebody has a perfect game or a no-hitter alive, then you cannot do it. But otherwise... offer to concede and the other team can say can yes accept, or no. Yeah, I think that would be fine because then the Indians would have said no in this game, but the Dodgers definitely would have said yes. They don't have to waste yeah, extra pitchers. Both teams were flying to the West Coast yes. on a Sunday night ESPN Not just to game. the West Coast, but from New York to California. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's just stupid. It was, what, 11 o'clock at night, yeah. West Coast? It was just really, really, really... I said it. Stupid. Okay, yeah, that, that game did not need to continue on. But by the way, speaking of stupid, uh, the Padres lost three out of four to the Diamondbacks this weekend. So if you want to talk about a team that is really overhyped by a lot of people, it's the Padres. Uh, they're only two games up on the Reds for the wild card, for the final wild card spot. The Dodgers have a bigger lead on the Padres, and the Giants have a bigger lead on the Dodgers than the Padres do on the Reds, which should let you know how those teams break down. The Dodgers are a lot closer to winning that division than the Padres are to even making the playoffs. Uh, it's very, very simple, and I don't understand why people don't get this, but here's a sign of why I'm really thinking this. In that 7 nothing blowout that I mentioned earlier, Diamondbacks starting pitcher Tyler Gilbert threw a no-hitter in the first MLB start in his career. Not only did he do that, but the Padres hit 10 balls over 95 miles per hour. None of them landed in the game. And he did not throw a single pitch above 94, I believe. And they did not, and, and they did not, they weren't able to get a hit off of it. I'm just going to say, if you're going to do that to the Diamondbacks, what are you doing against the other teams? We talked about how they had that easy schedule. Well, now guess what? That easy schedule flips. They now have the hardest remaining schedule in all of the MLB. So they needed to make up a lot of ground while they were playing those 20 or so games that I talked about. They're now to, down to only seven or eight of those. And by the way, some of those games got a lot harder because the Phillies and Braves were under 500 by the time that, that, that stretch started. But now they're both not. Now they're fighting for a division. And uh, they're playing a lot better. So... The Padres now don't have any more easy games left because the easy the 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 medium easy the medium level games got taken away and then the rest of their schedule is a lot of Dodgers and a lot of Giants in September and that does not bode well for them because the Dodgers and Giants will be fighting for the division and have better teams. It doesn't show good things for the Padres at all. Uh, and really, I don't know how I don't know their viability as a contender, but we'll probably talk about this more next week. Yeah, they've dug themselves a huge hole. All right. Some other and, and by the way, losing three out of four against the Diamondbacks is awful. I don't think the Giants and Dodgers combined have lost three games against the Diamondbacks all season. Maybe combined they've lost four. While we're talking about the Padres, you want to say anything nice? You've got one random note on them so that we can stop talking about the Padres. Well, yeah, I can skip to that one. I was going to go to some to, to some other good news and then some bad news again. But yeah, let's talk about some injuries, actually. A lot of injuries coming up. Tatis does come back off the IL, and he plays in right field. Goes 4-for-5 four with a double, two home runs, and an RBI single. Four total RBIs. Four, well, actually, I was about to say four times, but actually an infinite amount more <laughs> RBIs than what they had the day before. Uh, he has four hits on his own. The team yesterday, or two days ago, I guess, had zero. 
So, just goes to let you know, he really is Superman for that team. He does everything. He alone outscored the Diamondbacks in this game with only his solo home runs. And then when you also throw in his double and his RBI single, then you get four, four total RBIs. They won that game 8-2. to two. Uh, Yeah, they need Tatis. And by the way, I would argue that 10 games without Tatis against really bad teams is much harder than 10 games with Tatis against medium-level teams. So I actually wouldn't be surprised if they fare better playing the Phillies and the Braves with Tatis than they did playing the Diamondbacks without him. I really wouldn't be surprised. He really is everything to this team. Uh, speaking about guys who are everything to this team, a long time ago, Chris Sale was everything to the Red Sox. He comes back for his first start since 2019. And they also get Kyle Schwarber back from the IL. Sale pitched five innings uh, and only gave up two earned runs. Schwarber had two walks and two runs in his first game with the Sox, and then two doubles and one run in his second game. So actually, so far, with a 333 average right on the dot, uh, pretty good for him so far. I mean, that that's what they like to see. They wanted some extra pop in the lineup. There's two walks and then... And, and two runs scored that he created, and I think that was in the 16-2 game, so it's not like they really needed it. Um, and then also two doubles, which is exactly what you're expecting from him. A lot of extra base hits. Yeah, uh, but the, so, the Red but, Sox needed much-needed help, as we talked about them swooning lately. And and definitely, I mean, it, it's reflected in my power rankings. As soon as I re- realized that Sale and Schwarber were coming back, I gave them probably an extra team boost. I was going to put the Yankees above them, and then I flipped them just because I saw... Sales back, Schwarber's back, Schwarber's being productive. That means they have to go one above. Uh, but bad news, Roger Federer, and by the way, this isn't, by the way, Roger Federer doesn't play baseball, guys. Don't worry. This isn't, this isn't more baseball. He doesn't play tennis much anymore either. Uh, yeah, apparently not because he will miss multiple months. His own quote is quote unquote many months. I don't really know what that means, but I would assume that means more than two uh, with an injury. So no U.S. Open for him. I don't know what other major tournaments are coming up. I don't. It's the last one this year. I, I was about to say. I think that is the end of the Grand it Slam tournament. Could be, so he's getting old. People were wondering when age was going to catch up with him. It might be this year. Well, I think it's very interesting. Honestly, I, I'm surprised that he hasn't retired yet. Yeah. And then I think, if I'm going to be honest, he's probably going to play one more Wimbledon, and then maybe the rest of the season that he missed because of injuries this year, and then call it quits. I yeah, would not he, be very surprised. Neither would I. Uh, and then you have. Some non-injury news, actually some good news. Two things of good news. Well, depending on who you're a fan of. Eric Bledsoe traded to the Clippers for Patrick Beverly, Rajon Rondo, and Daniel Oturu to the Memphis Grizzlies. Very, very interesting considering that the Grizzlies just traded for Eric Bledsoe. So he actually, uh, Memphis pulls an OKC and they trade for a player and he never plays a single game in their jersey (laughs) as they flip him for more players. But by the way, that makes that Grizzlies-Pelicans trade even more lopsided because now that you see it, now the Grizzlies basically got six players in turn for two and two picks. They got six players and two picks for two players and two picks. Very, very good trade by the Grizzlies. And by the way, some defensive intensity, some veteran leadership, and then another young guy that can maybe prosper on that young team, that's a really good return for the Grizzlies. Uh, And by the way, I... I wasn't really sure where Eric Bledsoe would fit in with John Morant and Dylan Brooks, and honestly, even with Desmond Bain, who was really an unheralded prospect, but then ended up with ended up as I think the rookie three point leader. I think he made the most three pointers, and also was up there in the top five in terms of percentage in all of the NBA, and is also having a really good summer league. So when you consider that, I don't know where Bledsoe was going to play for this team, especially with all the young guys. But I think when you with with getting Patrick Beverly and Rajon Rondo. You get some young you get some young guys with Jaw and Dylan Brooks that are mixed 
with Pat Bev and Rondo off the bench. They have four really, really, really good guards and Desmond Bain as a shooter. And then you also have a lot of veteran presence now that can help Ja really become, I mean, a, a super, a super, super, superstar because Rajon Rondo can teach Ja a lot about Ja's own game because frankly, Ja has more talent than Rajon Rondo did when he came into the league and Ja has already shown that in the playoffs and I think this can only make, this move can only make him better. Great move by the Grizzlies. The last bit of news, we've pushed it back so many times, but we're finally here to say it. The Olympics. The USA ends with one more gold, 39-38 to 38 over China, and 25 more overall medals than China, becoming the unofficial winner of the Olympics. And the reason why I say unofficial is because they don't actually track winners of the Olympics because the problem is if China had finished with more gold medals and yet USA had a 25 overall medal advantage, who's the quote-unquote winner? There really is none. So uh, it's very hard to, to describe who has the best Olympics, but I think... When you when you want to go when you want to get down to it, twenty five more medals in the second best country is pretty good. But at the same time, they should do somebody should do a calculation of medals per athlete because the U S would be at the bottom of that because I think we sent a thousand athletes and came back with a hundred medals. Rain on our patriotic parade. Well, I will say. I mean, I will say though, you, there are countries who probably sent two or three people and came back with two gold medals and one silver medal. We're sending at least 300, 400 people. And not and only ending up with a hundred. And by the way, a lot of that's because team sports. Obviously, the basketball team alone was probably more than half the countries in the Olympics sent in total. But at the same time, somebody get a medals per 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 player or per Olympian calculation out or there. Per event or something. Exactly. I think it would be very. I think it would be very very yeah. Per event participated, and I think it would be very interesting. Although that one would also skew towards. Uh, teams who send multiple to every event because the U.S. takes two or three medals in every in some events, too. All right. Well, that wraps up our off-delayed look at the Olympics. Um, I think it reflects the interest that was in the Olympic Games this year, which was really, really low. This was low. by far the most boring Olympics ever. I would watch the Field of Dreams MLB game 30 times over before watching any more Olympic events. It'll be interesting to see whether this was a one-time thing because of the pandemic or whether... We really are entering a new era where the Olympics just aren't a thing. Oh, I still like the Olympics. I just need fans there so yeah, that it's actually fun. I think it, it just makes it, takes, it more takes interesting. Away a lot yeah, of the pageantry and and the uh, the international competition feel to it. Yeah. All right. Well, it also wraps up this edition of the Fourth and Twenty Four podcast. So please be sure to check out our next podcast, which will be on Friday, August twentieth, where we will have our weekly analysis of Major League Baseball action and other news from the world of sports. In the meantime, please be sure to check out Patrick's additional content, including his picks for next weekend's games and his MLB Power Rankings updates, which are posted on Saturdays on our website, 4thand24.com. That's the number 4, T-H-A-N-D, the number 24.com. Thank you for listening.